Welcome to Testify It, where we are sharing the love of Christ and building people up through testimonies and teaching. Our passion is to share how God is working in people's lives today. My name is Rhonda Wagner, and I'm a founder and board member at Testify It. We have a wonderful God-filled testimony from Dick Sorensen, who has an apostolic calling to take the good news to the world. In the 1980s, Dick went into communist countries, including Romania, to bring aid and the gospel. In one of these trips, he had an encounter that had an ending only God could orchestrate. This is uh, Bruce Fowler. I'm a board member of the organization called Testify It, uh, whose idea is to hear, capture, and disseminate testimonies of Christian life. And uh, we have someone here today that I really want you to meet, my good friend, Dick Sorensen. And when I say good friend, he is in his 70s, not as old as me, but we have known each other, goodness, over a half a century. Uh, he has, he's a teacher's teacher, a preacher's preacher, and he ministers all over the world from an apostolic perspective. Uh, Dick, I want to ask you, um, where has the Lord put you, sent you, directed you? Where have you been the last few decades? <clears throat> Primarily in the 1040 window of missions. Um, Maybe you need to explain what the 1040 window is. 10 degrees north, 40 degrees north of the equator. All around the world, and in that segment of the world, you'll find the most unevangelized, and unreached people groups in the world. Mostly Asia is where most of those reside? The Middle East. It runs the Middle East all across Asia. Do you, do you know how many countries you've had significant ministry in? Uh, how many countries have you been in? Well, I've, I've been in just over 100 countries, but goodness, primarily ministered the most in about 70. And those have been... Uh, a lot of the North African countries, Central Africa, all across Asia and Southeast Asia. Dick is the one who has taught me. If you are silly enough to say yes to the Lord, you'd better have your hat on and your bags packed because you're going places you can't even pronounce. And as I got acquainted with <clears throat> Dick and the Lord more and more, that's exactly what happened. We He... We went to Philippines with him and China and lots of other places. And when I'd stay home, I'd get a call every once in a while from, <laughs> from you, Dick. And um, we'd talk for a few minutes, and then I'd say, where are you? And you would say, oh, well, I'm in Malaysia. Ma Malaysia? I thought you were going to go to Germany. Well, yeah, that was week before last. And and we're heading now to, to Nigeria or somewhere in Africa or somewhere so uh, you've been all around. You you teach a lot in churches and seminaries and out in the bush. And mm -hmm. uh, your passion, I know, because I know you, your passion is Jesus and his word, scripture. And um, we were just now talking about the whole idea of testifying. And you referred to Psalms 78. Can you, yes. can you tell us anything about that? Okay, about a year ago, we were... Uh, talking about that in a church in the Kansas City area. And uh, the Lord directed us to Psalm 78. We began to look at that. 
say, yeah, we, we understand what testimony is. And the Lord said, no, you don't. <laughs> Let me re-educate you on this whole idea. So as we began to not just look at the Hebrew, but ask the Lord, what does that mean in context for our lives? And basically said the testimony is to point to where God has entered into our reality in the natural and his kingdom has come and his will is done here on earth. So that window is open. And what he has done is to reveal the reality of who he is, whether we think it's appropriate or not, or it can be done, he does it. <laughs> and so the testimony points to that and says, and says to the people that we're testifying to, and it should be the next generation, and then the next generation, and the next, because in Psalm 78, he basically says it needs to happen for four generations. And as a result, we're saying, this is what God did in this particular situation and context in my life, and here's how he entered into it, and here's what he did. And what he's done for me is available for him to do for you. Mm-hmm. He never has closed this window that he opened. So we're saying, don't start all over trying to figure out if God is even real. Here he is. And so the Hebrew word is saying, repeat it again and again at unspecified times, over and over. Do it again. And so as we were sharing that and looking at the Hebrew, it was hard for people to pronounce it. One lady really couldn't hear it very well. And she said, all I hear is hot dog. So she said, that's what I think. Hot dog, do it again, God. (laughs) Do it again. So that began to catch on. Anytime there were any testimonies over the next year, you'd hear somebody shout out, hot dog, do it again, Lord. I want to receive that same reality of you entering into my place and my need and revealing the reality of who you are. So... That is, I, as we were talking about this, I'm going, I think God must be really serious about this uh, testimony because uh, Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. Everything he did and said, he said, what I've done, you do. <laughs> you know, when the Father leads me, he'll lead you. The way the Holy Spirit reveals himself to me, he'll do to you. Kept pointing, doing all of these miracles. Dick, when I see some of the things that God has done in your life and in your ministry, and I've seen lots and lots of miracles. I've seen people raised from the dead. I've seen people healed. And yet you've seen a whole lot more than I have been able to see. In fact, we were even talking today about some of the things that God has done in your life. When you were sharing scripture and sharing the word behind the iron curtain years and years and years ago when there was really an iron curtain uh, you were uh, talking about some of the miracles and things it was kind of hard for us to decide which kind of miracle and which kind of (laughs) testimony we even wanted to center in on today but maybe if we just choose one um okay why don't why don't i leave that to you and let you take off okay many many times the testimony will 
will actually be more than just an event and an incident, but it actually begins to reveal, for a different uh, term, several generations of purpose that God has. And sometimes we get to kind of see it in a small little cosmic way. And so one of those things happened in uh, the late 80s before the Iron Curtain uh, came tumbling down. Um, Myself, uh, another guy who was with me, uh, were with two of the couriers that would go into the Iron Curtain. They would go in about uh, every month. And there were at that particular place in uh, southern Germany and Bavaria, there were 40 people that uh, lived in the same place and were making those trips every month. And so they, uh, we we knew the leaders of the organization. It was very secretive. And they asked if we would uh, want to go. We said, well, sure. We're here, you know, why not? To go to do what? To teach, uh, preach, evangelize, what? Well, you were you, you were going in at driving, so we were driving a vehicle, and we were going to go into Hungary, uh, leave Germany, go through Austria, into Hungary, into Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia. And we'd be taking money, and Bibles, Christian literature, and clothes, and food to uh, Christians in those areas. They didn't know we were coming. There was no way to contact them. So it was all saying, okay, God has to have something arranged. And so you would drive to a known uh, town, and in the town, you'd park a vehicle at a train station so you weren't as obvious. You tried to dress up in the clothes that they wore in those areas and let your uh, hair be much more shaggy and your beard. And the only problem was I found out uh, that we couldn't hide that we were from not only the West, but actually from America. And I started asking why, and they said, well, you walk like you have freedom. And we said, what? And they said, well, everything about you, the way you carry, the way you look at people, and everything you do is because you have freedom. And we go, wow, okay. So anyway... As they could a, see the difference. They noticed. Oh, absolutely. Even looking at you, oh, there yeah. was something. We'd be on, on buses riding, and they knew. They'd, People knew they'd you were American. And, yeah. And uh, that began to tell us, okay, when, when you and I grow up in freedom, we are experiencing something that is very unusual uh, to many people in the world, and it becomes obvious to them. To us... <laughs> That's just the way we are. That's the way we live. So uh, one of the places that we went, uh, well, to give you a, a little different illustration, we ended up out in this, um, oh, 
country area that didn't look like there were any people there. There was kind of this barn-type building. And we arrived uh, about 8 o'clock in the evening, and we were up by the uh, Czechoslovakian border in uh, Romania. And uh, we get out, we open the door, and it's full of people. And we kind of go in. The couple that were with us were British, but uh, they spoke German, and most of the conversation was carried on in some form of German. And the people said, well, we've been expecting you. (laughs) And we said, what do you mean you've been expecting us? You didn't know we were coming. They said, the Lord told us. And so we've been gathered together here for three days, praying and worshiping and waiting for you to come. And so we shared with them, uh, distributed some of what was supposed to be given to them, and then they asked for us to preach, and we preached, and we sang, and we worshiped, and they prayed, and they cried. And they gave us uh, all of this food to eat. It turns out it was all they had for a month because at that point you had only so much food you could buy each month that was allotted by the government. And uh, it wasn't that tasty. But we rejoiced and ate it. And bless the Lord because what a sacrifice they were doing. So... And as we began to travel on, we finally came to a city. It was about oh, 50 miles before we arrived in Bucharest, Romania. And the man that we were going to see, if it worked out, was, uh, they said, the leader of the Hungarian Reformed Church in Romania. I thought, well, that's interesting. They said, well, he was the leading theologian in the uh, seminary and university. He was in, at that time, he was 72. And they had removed him from his position because he refused to accept uh, their philosophy of communism. And... uh, he would not preach the communist doctrine, which in all of the churches at that time, if you preached at all, then one Sunday a month, you had to preach everything about the communist doctrine. And they have monitors that know whether you are or not. So the church was sort of a, a tool <coughs> oh, of the government. Yes. Not even free, even within the church? No, it's uh, under the Department of Religious Affairs. And all of the leaders of the Department of Religious Affairs were Communist Party members. And how they utilized religion was to control it, dominate it, intimidate, and get you to agree so people that would come... um, What they really got was a lot of the Communist doctrine. So, uh, Victor Tokish would not comply. He would not be intimidated in any way, which pretty well infuriated him. 
And they thought if they would uh, kill him, it would just actually raise more people that would believe what he was saying and practice it. So instead of uh, torturing or executing him, they just removed him and said, you don't have a job anymore, so you don't get any money. And at that period of time, the only way you got money was if the government paid you for whatever job you were doing. You didn't exchange it between people. So, and I said, so how long? So when we arrived in the city and we parked in the train station uh, and then we made our way to this vegetable stand and David, the uh, British fellow, uh, asked them several questions in German and they didn't respond with the proper code or the proper words. So he said, let's walk on. And I said, why? He said, that's not the right people there. So he said, we'll go have coffee. <laughs> you had a prearranged code. They did. For well, to... in any time somebody would come, they knew where to go, but they didn't know who would be there. But they there were several things that they were to ask or to say. If the people responded correctly, then you would begin to open up. If they didn't, then you'd leave and you'd come back later. So we walked around... Uh, for a couple of hours, and his uh, wife, Sheena, Sheena and uh, Randy walked around a couple of hours, different places, so we weren't too obvious. Uh, we went back, and uh, different people were there. He asked, they responded, worked out where we were supposed to go, <laughs> and we ended up at uh, Victor Tokish's home at a particular time. And he was there expecting us because they got word by the time it took us about 40 minutes to walk there. And Randy and Shana came about 30 minutes later and they took a different route. So they got there about an hour after we did. And uh, as we came in, he was very boisterous and loud and uh about a six-foot-tall, barrel-chested guy, and he never walked like he didn't know freedom. He <laughs> <laughs> looked just exactly opposite of everything you saw, and he was not intimidated at all. And I said, well, how long ago did they remove you from your position so that you haven't been receiving any any money? And he said, oh, Five years. I said, well, how have you been living? He said, God, the people. He said, people give chickens. Hey, see that chicken over there? We got eggs. They, they give because God does this. He said, that's how. We live because of God. He said, we all do. I said, yes, you're right. I just haven't had to do it quite in that way. And he said, well, let's sit down. And I will turn the radio on. So he had a radio, and he put it up on this mantle area. And he said, the 
he's telling us, he said, the listening device is up here. So he said, we put the radio up and turn it up real loud. And so everything they're listening to is all of the music. He said, then we all sit down here and we pull up knee to knee for the next six hours, eight hours, and we talk. But the Communist Party, through this little microphone, was really trying to listen. Oh, absolutely. I said, so you know? He said, of course I know. He said, they tell me. (laughs) And he said, they have a guy following me all the time. And he said, I preach to him. (laughs) He said, sometimes they change people because I'm effective. (laughs) He said, well, praise God, continue. (laughs) And so we spent about eight hours just listening to what was happening, talking with him, sharing. And in the middle of that, he looked over at me and he says, I'm angry with you. And I'm why are you angry with me? He said, it's your fault that we're in this condition. Me? What have I done? I haven't done anything. He said, your President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill put us under the communist control. I said, really? Later I found out that was really true. That their countries, all of those countries, had uh, Stalin had made an agreement with Roosevelt and with Churchill about divvying up that area of the world. And he said, we were not communists before. And he said, now we are. It's your fault. I said, well, I didn't know that, but will you forgive me? He said, no, you were wrong. I don't have to forgive you if you're wrong. And I said, whoa. Wait a minute. We need to talk about forgiveness. He said, what do you mean? After about four hours of looking at forgiveness through the scripture and then talking, he said, I don't. He said, this is amazing. He said, you see the scripture through a different lens than we do. We see it through the culture that we're in and how it's been affecting us. And he said, can you stay for the next month and every day come back and let's talk like this? All of these scriptures. He said, we need to talk. And I go, we have to leave tomorrow morning. I'm sorry. But as we were kind of winding down the time there, his, uh, he introduced his, one of his sons to us. And he said, this is my son, Laszlo Tokish. He says, Laszlo followed in my steps and his brother's steps, and he's been a pastor. And he said he was a youth pastor, and he named one of the cities. And he said, but he became very effective. And he said 300 young people became Christians. So they removed him from that position and put him at another church where there were no young people. He said in less than a year, another 300 people became Christians because he was effective. The Lord is there. And we said, well, where's this other brother, uh, son you have? And he said, well, he's a pastor in Canada. He said he escaped and he's in Canada. 
And I said, well, so Laszlo, why are you here? He said, well, they removed me after those two, and we have no job. <laughs> so we're here, my wife and I and our two kids. And I said, how long have you been here? He said, a year. I said, well, is there going to be any change? He said, evidently not, unless the Lord has a different plan. So we finished talking with Victor and Laszlo left. And about uh, an hour and a half later, when we were ready to leave, he came out. He had a letter. He said, would you take this letter? And when you get to the United States, mail it to my brother in Canada, in Montreal. He said, I'm going, sure. And David and Sheena said, wait a minute, we need to talk about this. <laughs> and I'm going, why not? And it was single, uh, it was five pages, single space, front and back. And I said, well, what's on this? He said, it's recording all of the atrocities that have happened in the last five years here in this country under communism, under uh, Ceausescu. And that's when David and Sheena said, we need to talk. So they went and talked. We talked a little more. Finally, they said, okay, we believe we can try to smuggle this out of the country. Sounds like a dangerous letter. If it fell into the wrong hands, yes. it could cause and a lot of Yes, and he problems. said, but it's written in Hungarian. We're in Romania. He said, they won't know what it says even if they look at it. We're gone. Okay. <laughs> and we finished the trip in Romania. We went out a different border than we came in, and that was a purposeful thing. And usually each border crossing, and we were going actually just from Romania into Hungary, back into Hungary. But it was usually four cars that are coming from the Western Europe. It was about a 14-hour experience going through the border. If you were from Eastern Europe, it was three days. And so they stopped our vehicle, got us out, took everything out of our suitcases, dumped them out, spread everything out, got everything else out of the car, took the seats out of the car, took the lining out of the trunk, opened the hood. They took all the wheels off of the car. They took the air cleaner off, took the carburetor off, checked many places to see if there were any hidden compartments in the vehicle. And one of the vehicles in front of us, they took grills out and started drilling through fenders. And uh, we were praying because Randy had just bought this car for his mother in Germany that he was going to ship home. And we're going, well, Lord, uh, we hope they don't do that. And then they put every, they told us, said, okay, you can put everything back in the car, put it all back together. So we did. And uh, and we sat for about two hours. Then they came out and said, Take everything out of the car again. They strip it, take everything out again. Did that three times. Finally, they came out again. Now, they took your passports right at the beginning, and you didn't see those. And finally, they came out and said, Come with us. 
we're going to take you over to this building. And David said, uh-oh. He said, uh, this means they're going to strip searches. And I'm going, and why are we uh-ohing? He said, because Sheena has a letter on the inside of her sock. And he said, they'll probably find that letter. And so they take her first, and they take us over, and we're waiting outside. Uh, and they have two guards with machine guns on us, and then three looking at us. And they come out with the letter in hand. Of course, they can't read it, but they know we have a letter. Now, I forgot until we start walking into where they're going to uh, search us, that in my wallet, <laughs> I have the names of all of the pastors that we have visited up to that point in yeah. time. And it's in between uh, some credit cards. And if you turn my wallet upside down, all the stuff falls out. And so I'm praying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but prevent them from finding it, or if they do, don't let them see it or know what's going on. And we're not we're we're not talking to each other, and we're all going in there. And their procedure is to have one guard search you while two others watch any of your facial expressions or your body. If there's a problem, you get nervous, and they know there's something up. And so he took my wallet out, and. He, and he tried to pull the credit cards out and wouldn't come out. After a while, he just threw it down. Thank you, Lord. So we get back out. And now uh, they take us and put us in this holding area. And Sheena said, uh, they asked me about this letter. And I told them that somebody just asked us to give it if we could take the letter and mail it. And we said, sure, we can take a letter and mail it. What harm would that be? We were going to uh, camping grounds, and we had come into each of these countries saying, we're here to visit your beautiful country and to see all of the things we've heard about that are renowned. And we're here going to be camping. And so we go to a campground that was usually about 30 to 50 kilometers away from the town we were going in. And you had to always leave a passport there as you checked in. And then we'd drive into town one way, come back a different way, and usually get back about 2 in the morning. Go to sleep, get up the next morning about 7 load up and drive for eight hours to get to the next place. So that was kind of, so, you know, I mean, we had clothes and food and stuff in the car because we'd been giving it out along the way, but we're camping. So, and that's what we're, we said, well, you know, we just met this person. They asked us if we'd take this letter and mail it. So pretty soon they, they didn't ask Randy or I because we didn't speak German. But they took David. Of course, his story was the same as Sheena's. 
So now they move us and say, you take the car and drive it out into this area and stay there in the car. Well, we get out there and <laughs> David's reading the sign. He said, oh, oh, this is not good. He said, why? He said, this says confiscated vehicle area. And Randy's going, oh, no, not my mother's car. And so we're stuck out in the middle of this, and it's all swampy around there and mosquito infested and about 100 degrees outside. We're there about four hours, kind of baking, and finally we go, we're not going to stay here. You know, we're going to go get in the shade. But we have to walk back to where it's kind of like we're in no man's land. So we have to walk back, and then they have their barrier and the guy with the machine gun. And so we come walking back, and he yells at us, says, go back out there. And David says, no, we're not. It's too hot. We're going to sit in the shade here. He yells, no, not going to do it. So we just walk by him. And I notice the guy gets really anxious and nervous as we're doing that. So I said, David, what I'm perceiving is they do everything they can to intimidate you. Is that right? He said, oh, yeah. That's how they operate. If they can intimidate you, they have power over you. I said, uh, what happens when you're not intimidated? He said, oh, they get intimidated because they can't figure out what is going on. I said, okay, that's all I need to know. So pretty soon I walk over to the main guard that we have been <laughs> having to deal with that took our passports and directed us to go in and be searched. And I said, uh, I'd like our passports back. He said, no, you go over there and sit down. He said, we control you. I said, you know what our passports say? Our passports say that we are not to be detained. We're not to be obstructed in any way. If anybody does, they become an enemy of the United States and war can be declared. And I said, now, when I get back to the United States, I'm going to go tell my friend Ronald Reagan about you. He was president at that time. And he going, you can't tell him. You don't know me. You don't know my name. And I said, yes, I do. It's... George, I pronounce a little different. How do you know my name? You don't, how? And I said, I asked him. He told me, this guard. And now they start yelling at each other. And I said, you know what I'm going to do, George? I'm going to tell Ronald Reagan what you've done. And I'm going to ask him if he'll remove Romania from favored nation status, which you have right now, which means... We were giving them $50 million a year, if you can believe that, at that time, because of favor nation. And I said, and it's going to be your name that caused this. What do you think your government's going to do to you, George? He yelled. But about 10 minutes later, he came and gave us our passports. And I said, where's the letter? He said, what letter? There was no letter. And I said... I'm going to report this incident. And he said, there's no incident. There's no incident marking your passport. There's nothing. 
there's not been, have a good day. Go on out. So, we leave. We did get word that they, of course, they translated that letter. They went and arrested Laszlo. And uh, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. And they were torturing him every day, we found out. So, when I got back to the States, which was about a month later, uh, I was doing some other things on the East Coast and ended up at Virginia Beach and uh, worked it out. I got on the 700 Club and was interviewed about that whole thing. And so I shared that story and I said, you need to write. Everybody that's listening to this program, seeing this from all over the world, you write cards and letters about Laszlo Tokish and ask about what's being done for him and make all this protest. And they did. And millions of people started doing that. So they released him from prison in nine months. And they decided they couldn't kill him <laughs> because everybody now in the world was aware of this. So they thought, how can we nullify him? And they put him in a little teeny church down on the Hungarian border and made him an associate pastor under this old pastor who was communist. And he was keeping him in line. Wouldn't let him do anything. Only thing is, after six months, that guy died. And Laszlo is left. And he's preaching. Hundreds of people started getting saved. They started coming from the towns around there, even coming from over in Hungary. Hundreds, hundreds. Pretty soon, the government sends the troops down to arrest him and kill him. All of the people that have been saved gather around and overwhelm the troops, and the re revolt started. That's where it started there. And it went on up into the country, and they ousted Ceresescu. He became the head of the Department of Religious Affairs. Hallelujah. Praise God. I, I, I'm just almost overwhelmed at the truth that you cannot oppose God and you win. Yeah. You can't oppose any of, any of his people. There's nothing that overcomes the Lord. And yet, most of us don't put ourselves in the position to see that kind of miracles. And so, we don't. We just hear about them from other people. You're probably talking to a lot of people right now who are wrestling with, shall I do what God is telling me to do? Oh, this doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It may even be dangerous. Do you have a word for someone who might be considering that option? Um, if... If God's telling us something, it has a purpose, and it Amen. it may not unfold for a time, but then it happens instantly. I mean, if you think about, I, I mean, the same thing was true with Joseph. I mean, seventeen, he gets this strange dream Joseph in the book of Genesis. Yes, in the book of Genesis, he gets this strange dream uh, about the future. His interpretation. 
his application a little different than the way it was actually going to work out. And uh, he goes through 13 years of it looking like God must not have given him that dream. And each time, it seems like things get worse till he ends up in the dungeon. And the only way he can get out is if the king calls him by name, Pharaoh, and he has no idea he's there, so there's no way he's going to call his name. But guess what? In an instant in time, he had to be exactly where he was for God to do what he did with him. And guess what? It wasn't just for Joseph's benefit. And it wasn't just for Israel's. It was, and wasn't just for Egypt's. It was for all of those countries that were going to go through starvation unless he had been exactly where he was to be in that position to bring about the salvation of all of these countries. And God wasn't surprised. God's never surprised. So, you know, so many times we're, our, our visual perspective is our time frame. And, and we think of time as it started here and it ends here. But God doesn't look at time like that because he's outside of it. And so the best thing that I can come up with about time is that it's this spiraling circle. It starts down here and it keeps going up. And we're little teeny things all in this circle, but God looks at all of it together and he is knowing that this is going to have this impact up here, maybe three generations away. And this will, and this will, and this will. And so all of these things, he's working together for our good, all of us, but to bring glory to his name. And our perspective, if we, if that's all we see, we don't get it. And of course, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, uh, he makes us to sit with him in heavenly places. And the reason he does, he puts us on our, on his lap and said, let me show you how I see this. And by the way, he is the truth, you know. Yes. He, and truth is not information. And it's not doctrine. And it's not reason. That is a truth, but it's not the truth. The truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Until he tells us what all this information really means, we don't know. Many times we have it because other people have told us that's what it means. We come to our own conclusion, but also Satan's always whispered. And he's telling us this is the meaning. So truth is personal interaction with Jesus. Amen. And so if we, if, if I study the scripture and I read it, I have, I have a general knowledge of what it's about, but until I go to the Lord and say, Lord, okay, what does this mean? And how is this applying to my life now? What are you saying? Because you are the living, active word of God. You're, you're not sterile. 
You're not mute. You're living and active. And you will apply it to me. In First Peter 1, at, uh, chapter 2, it talks about desiring the milk of the word, whereby we grow and mature unto salvation, deliverance, healing, everything related to sozo. So, and I started thinking, Lord, what does it mean, the uh, milk of the word? And he said, well, milk is pre-digested food. I go, well, yeah, I guess it is. And he said, you come to me with this, and I'll tell you, I'll pre-digest it. The Holy Spirit will lead you into the truth. to take everything of mine and apply it to you. And he'll tell you exactly what you need to say at the time you need to say it. I said, yeah, but, you know, I've studied in the original languages. And he goes, that's not pre-digested. <laughs> <laughs> he said, the Holy Spirit will pre-digest this. And he will. And I said, yeah, but that guy was telling me it wasn't exactly the same. He says, that was a testimony. He did. It's not details. He's pointing to my activation and involvement. So he said, he say, go to the Lord, just like I did. He's available. It's open. He will do all that needs to be done. So I'm getting off of all of the testimony. But anyway, that's kind of what's been happening. So uh, what the Lord may say to you may be a little different application than he says to me. And sometimes... In the United States and several other of our Western civilization, we desire miracles and we desire healings, but we don't really want to be in a position to need them. We like to be safe, right, and comfortable, and, and, and to know ahead, right. And healing happens because you need it. It's not just because well that would be good. To, Let's see some healing. Let's see some miracles. So, if we keep praying, God, we want you to bring revival and do all of the miraculous things, he's going to say, okay, but you're going to need it. I'll be glad to do it, but you might be surprised when it happens. And that'll happen when we really begin to obey him. That's what I have seen in watching your testimony, Dick, just that you have been... I don't know where faith ends and stupidity begins, but you've been crazy enough to just follow what God says. Yeah. And you've seen miracle after miracle. And you even led me to follow and help and experience those miracles along with you. And for that, I'm really grateful. Father, I pray for my brother Dick and his wife Donna and the ministry that they have. Father, whether you send them to... Russia or Bulgaria or Tanzania or even now you've sent them way, way, way into the outer reaches of lower, darker Boise, <laughs> Idaho. Lord, wherever you send them, I pray that you would continue just to fill them with the anointing of your spirit and the covering. And Lord, that we might be able to hear, just like Dick and Donna have heard, your word, you are the word, Lord Jesus. And it's you that we want the relationship with. Now I pray for you to bless the Sorensons 
to bless the word that you've planted within them, even now in the thousands and thousands of people and churches and communities and seminaries and villages that you've sent them to, that your spirit might grow and thrive. And even now in our country, as we're becoming more and more and more into what we would call a dangerous situation, help us to be in the safety of obedience to you. No matter how logical or reasonable the world says that is, we set ourselves to follow you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today. I hope you were truly blessed. If you want more information about Testify It, please visit us at testifyit.com. That is T-E-S-T-I-F-Y-I-T dot com. Do you have a testimony to share? We would love to hear from you. Just go to testify.com and fill out the testimony form. You can find it at the bottom of any page on the site. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and truly want one, call out to Him today. Decide to give over your life, surrendering it to Him, and choose to follow Him. He has already paid the price for your sins with His death on the cross. He was raised on the third day and will give you everlasting life with Him. You will be born again, and He will place His Holy Spirit within you. Until next time, remember you are loved by God and He deeply desires a relationship with you.